Welcome to Cinemazing Chat's Year of End Big Amazing Oscar Blowout Extravaganza Adventure thing. <laughs> I'm your host, Pablo, and I'm here with my co-host, Erica. And we're going to be talking about all the movies that were nominated for Best Picture of the Year, as well as our general thoughts about the Oscars, which of the films we thought deserved to get nominated, which we didn't, um, an alternate list of films we thought should have been nominated but weren't, and predictions about what we think the Oscar people are actually going to vote for. I had, I had a question. Isn't it the 2018 Oscars, but it's about the 2017 films? Don't they still call it... Like, Oscars 2018. Right, exactly. So they always do it a year ahead. So that's why, for example, something like Black Panther wouldn't be um, considered for this year. Right, okay. So without further ado, uh, the first movie we're going to talk about is Lady Bird, which was the coming-of-age drama comedy that was directed by Greta Gerwig and starring Sayorzi Ronan. Oh, yeah, I have no idea how to say her name. Yeah, as well as Laurie Metcalf. And it actually had um, the two guys that she tries dating over the course of the film were actually both in other movies this year. Uh, the first one, Danny, was in Three Billboards Over Ebbing, Missouri. And then Kyle, uh, the second guy, was in Call Me By Your Name as the Elio character. So I thought this movie had a lot of interesting things going to it. Um, it takes place in Sacramento, a city that both of us are sort of familiar with. Um, so we have a bunch of friends that go to Davis, California, uh, UC Davis. So Lady Bird takes place in 2002 to 2003, so it has kind of that horrible early aughts aesthetic or something. I don't know. Right. It's sort of autobiographical biographical all about um, Greta Gerwig's growing up time. Uh, it had a lot of specific references also to the Catholic school where the character goes to. Mm-hmm. And overall, it's sort of like a coming-of-age story about this girl learning to date, uh, making mistakes, and sort of about her friendship with um, her best friend, Julie. Yeah, she's a senior in high school, so it's like the last year. And I guess, is Sacramento a bunch of suburbs? Yeah, it's pretty like well-to-do people usually, which is why there's a whole class thing throughout the movie. Like, Laurie Metcalf, her mom, is always really ashamed of how people will see the daughter, like her clothes and stuff. I guess uh, the dad and mom are both sort of struggling, mm-hmm. sort of blue-collary people. Yes. Um, so I thought that, personally, that this movie was really funny. Like, it had a lot of really good dialogue. Uh, Greta Gerwig also wrote it. And it had a good sense of pacing. Like, it didn't linger on any particular thing. It kind of just gave you a sense of stuff and then kept moving on. So I I was never bored while watching the movie. Mm -hmm. It was obviously very white. Like, I didn't think there were many minorities. Yeah. There's the stepbrothers. The the brother. It's her uh, adopted brother, yeah. And that was an interesting counterpoint to the whole narrative. Uh, Him and his girlfriend have some pretty good scenes where they get to be kind of like punky anarchist. (laughs) Yes, I thought the brother and his girlfriend were uh, cool. Um... But yeah, oh, can, and also, can we talk about how they made a Dave Matthews Band song, like, the central song? <laughs> yeah, um, so what was that song? It was the Crash song, where he's like, Crash into me or right. something, I don't know. <laughs> and I read after the fact that apparently Crash into me has some, like, weird sexual connotations to it. <laughs> 
so so she had to chose that particular song. But then there's this whole thing where she like tries to go in with the popular kids when she's dating Kyle, and then she's like trying to befriend like the really popular girl, but they're still like making fun of her. And then she like finally defends herself when they're like listening to the song and everyone's making fun of it. And she's like, I like this song, but of course, <laughs> us two would be like, fuck this song. Yeah, when I was watching that, I was like, no, don't take a stand about the Dave Matthews Band song. Don't make that your stand. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, like a weird hell to die on. Yeah, so that's what my main beef with um, Lady Bird, like the character, was. Is I felt like she was ultimately pro status quo. Like she had this sort of like different colored hair and wore all her like little bracelets and necklaces and stuff and tried to kind of look alternative or something. But I felt like at every chance she was enforcing the status quo. Like she didn't, she told her brother, take out your facial piercings. Maybe you'll get a job. She thought that, yeah, af- which I thought was funny. She thought that affirmative action got him into UC Davis and not her, but they kept saying how she was getting B's and not A's. So it sounded like he was a better student than her. Right. Like she's not supposed to be anything amazing. She's just like trying to build something up, which is why she like gets ambitious and is trying to apply to out of state schools, which causes like the big conflict in the film between her and her mother. Yeah, I was confused about that, too, because... They were taking out, like, a second mortgage on the house to pay for it or something, but I couldn't she have taken out lo- her own loans? Or, like, why did she have to be a burden on the family to go? Right, and then there's a whole, like, thing about uh, musical theater in particular. Like, she and her friend are both doing musical theater, and that's where she meets Danny, mm-hmm. who ends up being gay. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought that was a really interesting sub-thread, uh, just because he, like, takes her to meet his parents and his grandmother, so that he can sort of present her. And they're very wealthy. Yeah, they, like, have this giant house, and they have, like, a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, and then there's, like, a really nice scene, like, after it all comes out that he's gay, because she finds him making out with some guy, uh, where he, she, like, goes to confront him, or, like, he, like, wants to talk to her, and they meet in the back alley, and she and he's just, like, breaks down, and it's like, I can't be who I want to be. Yeah, she does end up comforting him. Yeah, so I thought that was a nice moment. I also just wanted to say that I think this film is Greta Gerwig probably being critical of herself at this age and at this time, so I don't think she's trying to be like, this character's so great. I think she's probably, like, being, like, critical of herself. Well, that's exactly why I was like, ugh, who is Greta Gerwig? Like, why was she so terrible? (laughs) I mean, obviously, she really did move to New York, and that's where she sort of found herself in all those uh, mumblecore movies. Oh my god, the fucking mumblecore I mean, you should see Francis Ha. I think that's sort of almost like a companion film to this because that one's all about like the post-college, like twenties experience. I think that's a nice companion piece of this. But anyway, um, I was just gonna say I think the real crux of this film is her relationship with her mother. Like that's sort of what the film's all about. And she does also have like a really nice dad who's sort of like introverted and sensitive. And I thought that was a nice portrayal. I liked the side characters. Yeah, the side characters are really good. Um, but for my money, I would say that Laurie Metcalf was the best actress that I saw all year. Her and Frances McDormand sort of go, like, head for head. And then kind of doing a similar role, really. Like, they're both, it's both about being, like, little quiet reservoirs of, uh, I don't know, anger or resentment. Yeah, angry moms, that's the theme. (laughs) I mean, I found the mom character really interesting just because she is so conflicted. Like, she has this whole thing where she, uh basically won't talk to her daughter for a long time when she finds out that she's not going to be going to school at UC Davis, like she had assumed. And 
then there's this whole scene where she drops her off at the airport and then when she's driving away you see her whole like breakdown where you see that she really is like sad about the whole thing oh because it's because the dad went into the airport to see her off and the mom was like no i'm not going so she was rejecting her but she says that she had an alcoholic and abusive mom so we're supposed to understand that that's why she's passing on this like intergenerational trauma yeah and i think it is something that probably a lot of people can relate to even me a little bit um just having like kind of conflicted uh relationships with our parents and stuff yeah it's not that it wasn't relatable it was just um I don't know. I was expecting it to be more. I thought the message was not subversive because I thought the ultimate message was pro Catholicism and like pro status quo. I think you're talking about the scene at the end where she goes into the church to like after she's already in college and they show a bunch of scenes from that time. Yeah, she's like alienated by some guy in college and then she walks by the church and finds solace and then calls her mom because she's like feeling guilty. And so that, I mean, I think the church. And the whole parental thing is, like, there to make you feel guilty and indebted to them or something. Right. And then immediately after that, she calls her mom and they have this whole nice scene where she's talking about how she remembers taking the driving test and then, like, driving through Sacramento and seeing it from a different point of view. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just all wrapped up with um, that her going to the church is supposed to be her connection to growing up in Sacramento, even though she probably didn't want to do that. Like the whole movie, she's complaining about Sacramento, but then at the end, she sort of feels nostalgic. There's also a really nice scene where she is talking with her friend for the last time. Like, they're basically realizing that they're not going to go to the same school. So I think it's also just that whole nostalgic thing of realizing that life goes on and things change. Yeah, she should have just called her friend and been like, fuck you to her mom. (laughs) Um, But wait, what was the deal with the friend? I didn't understand that. I thought the friend was getting really good grades, but she was going to like a state school and not like a UC school or something. Well, I think it's also suggested that the friend doesn't have a lot of money. um, So it's obviously she's not with the popular crowd either. And then you see her apartment later on when she comes to pick up her prom. So I think it's just like she probably doesn't have the money. Oh, so does she have like a free ride? Like is the state system like Humboldt State or something cheaper than... Like UC Davis or... Yeah, I think that would make sense. Okay. Oh, well, that's sad because her story is that she's underselling herself too because it looked like she was getting really good grades all the time. Right. Oh, I did want to mention that I did think the uh, actress who played the friend was really great. Like, I think she did a great job too. Yeah, I felt bad for her. And I think there was even like a slight, like it wasn't really like emphasized at all, but a slight indication that her friend might have been in love with her a little bit. Mm, Yeah, I appreciated. Yeah, I wish I that would have been cute if they had maybe um, hooked up or something for prom. I don't know. Oh, and we should talk about the Kyle character a little bit because he was really annoying. Oh my um, god! She, just, she sees this kid when she's like starting to hang out with the cool kids, and he pretends to be all deep, like he's reading all this like philosophical and like anarchy stuff. And then he just like is totally just like he's an asshole. So he can, yeah, he uh, pretends to be a virgin. So they have sex for the first time, and then later he's like, "This isn't my first time." And then he just, like, totally flips and just, like, is being... Standoffish, yeah. He was... He's this per... Like, he's the call-me-by-your-name guy, and he's just, like, so good at being, like, pouty and kind of emo and sensitive. (laughs) It was perfect. It was, like, a nice inversion. (laughs) Yeah. 
apparently that kid's from uh, Homeland originally. Like that's oh. where you got to start. My favorite Kyle thing was where he was like, he rolls his own cigarettes because he doesn't want to participate in the money system. <laughs> Right. No, I mean, I like the dialogue when he was pretending to be, like, all anti-consumerist anti, like, uh, and stuff. Yes. Oh, and there's a funny scene when Lady Bird uh, reaches age 18 when she buys, like, all the stuff you can't buy. Like a... Porn. Porn and... Cigarettes. A lotto ticket. And, and a lotto ticket, yeah. Oh, but, um, so I felt like they should have provided a counterpoint to the Kyle guy. There should have been, like, a positive anarchist, maybe, like, her brother or something, because... That, that he like he had he was saying he was reading valid stuff but it they just presented it in such a he was a douche basically yeah um yeah i think the implication was just that she was like you know gaining her sea legs and they showed her like fooling around some guys in college later on she didn't like put nearly that much emphasis in it so right just, like, her, like learning how to like value herself maybe like devalue like relationship with guys oh yeah well she's probably like dissociate learned to dissociate with her mom being like emotionally abusive so right. it's, it seems like maybe she has trouble like making deep connections with people i mean i do think uh that the movie is empathetic both towards the ladybird uh character and the mom like just the idea that it is probably really hard to raise a kid especially like around that age who doesn't want to live there and there's all these like class issues and stuff yeah that her that her daughter is like not into right so i don't know i'd say overall i like this movie a a pretty good amount i can see why i was nominated um i think it did a really good job of just presenting like the female adolescent like experience since there isn't a lot of like good representation of that, or usually if there is, it's like with some dark undertinge. Like, wasn't there that thirteen movie? Oh yeah, with like all the sex and drugs and shit. Yeah, I think my thing was, I guess I probably was part of the target audience for this as a white lady who was alive, who was like a child in two thousand two. Yeah, but that's why I probably Virginia is had- not that different. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were like, we were in more suburban hellscape as well. Um, but. But we were, the, but we were the ones being like, fuck Dave Matthews since everyone there was. Right. Like, with him. Yeah, that's my thing is then I had a more gut reaction because I was like, there's another path. Like, you don't have to become this person. You don't have to abandon your nerdy friend to. Right. Be subversive or whatever, or to find yourself or whatever. Anyway, so yeah, that would be my summary is like. I was just expecting a different movie, a different character. Um, I guess I was sort of expecting this movie, and I got it. I sort of got what I expected. I did also want to mention that scene where um, they're just sitting with a choir director or something, and then he like gets all emotional. He's like, "Let's do a race to see who can cry the fastest," and oh. he just starts like weeping openly. Was he gay? Was that the undertone, the suggestion? And her mom was like his psychiatrist nurse or something. I think it was because he was dying or something. Like, oh. Didn't he like retire at some point? And then there's that funny scene where the coach comes in and is like, "All right, I'm going to do a theater director. Yeah, I'm gonna do it like a football game. Right? Yeah. The the director retires. Yeah. Okay. I guess that's it for that movie then. Yeah, we can move on. Um, so the second movie we're going to talk about is The Post, which is Steven Spielberg's latest <laughs> film, which is all about... Um, it's kind of really about how the Washington Post became the Washington Post that we all like know and talk about. And I also think this is funny. It's almost like the Rogue One to um, All the President's Men. <laughs> like it, it takes place literally exactly right to where... The ending is basically where All the President's Men starts. 
mm-hmm. you can watch both films back to back and have a good experience. Hmm. I don't know. What did you think of this film? I thought it was boring. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, clearly Spielberg has been in his sort of historical mode for a while now, which is why it's kind of exciting that he's about to do Ready Player One, which will hopefully be like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> right. Uh, I was really annoyed that Meryl Streep is constantly like the heavy in every single movie. Like, I feel like she could take a year off. Can we talk about her accent? So she's like a wealthy, oh, yeah. wealthy family from a wealthy family in the D.C. area, I guess. That's why they own the Washington Post. And she has this right. sort of affect or like some. Like, it's rich it's rich American accent, I guess. Yeah, it's strange. Agreed. And it's also kind of strange that she's, like, one of the protagonists. Like, we're supposed to be feeling sympathy for this, like, super wealthy woman. It's like, okay. That's what I struggled with. Yeah, it was, like, really, really high society America. Like, these people are friends with, like, the government people like Kennedy and Robert McNamara and stuff. They're personal friends of them, right. but they're also the the media they're also the journalists and stuff right and just a little background of all this um it sort of starts with this guy um who plays the husband in the americans uh and he's in vietnam so spielberg gets to do like another one of these like in the action in the shit war scenes of him being in the middle of vietnam and it's all these guys like dying horribly uh and of course there's like a fucking clearance clearwater revival song one of these songs, oh i know these fucking vietnam scenes I don't know why that always has to be the case, but anyway, he, like, is a reporter, basically, so he's there um, reporting on everything he sees, and then they make a bunch of documents all about how the Vietnam War went on for years longer than it had to, and that the president knew. Yeah, so these are the Pentagon Papers, which I had to, like, read a lot of wiki pages in order to understand this movie. So the Pentagon Papers proved that the government had been involved in Vietnam for, like, 30 years in, like, this... And this was 1971, this movie happened. And so for a very long time, and then it, like, showed that they knew they were going to lose as well, or that they weren't winning. Yeah, I think they said between seven and nine years, they just kept the the war going on and that's basically what the crux of the film is about so this guy um photo documents a bunch of things out of the rand corporation it sends them to his uh source at the washington post who's played by bob odenkirk oh my god there's so many people in this movie and they're all doing like these character actor things and trying to look like the yeah. real people because they all have like wiki pages the guy they got to play <laughs> robert mcnamara looks exactly like the real guy if you go to his wiki page it's like weird um oh, that's pretty cool yeah oh yeah he does <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's played by um oh bruce greenwood okay who's been in the like the star trek reboots hmm. so yeah basically oh it's also kind of funny that this movie has both of the guys in mr show in it <laughs> it's both bob odenkirk and david cross who are both in mr show <laughs> together and work together a lot oh my gosh are they both reporters or journalists in this one or wait what are they yeah okay yeah they both play reporters that's funny oh and it's also like um a lot of these Spielberg films, he does a lot of, like, this background business. Like, he has this young reporter running through the streets and all that. It's just, like, these little, like, jokes and stuff that, I don't know, to me, they always go over, like, a lead balloon. Yeah, one thing I thought was funny and the, like, filmmaking technique side of this was how they portrayed typing and reading because there's a lot of, like, text-based going on in this movie so there's like scenes where they have like text running over video they have people reading there's a scene at the end where she's um one of the reporters is getting 
um, something told to her over the phone and then she has to repeat it. So it becomes like her monologue or something. I, that was right. It's almost like, yeah, it's almost like wanking off this era. Uh, just like sort of, this is how these people had to do this shit back then. I was like, this is a time before computers. This is horrible with all the typewriters. They have to transcribe the Pentagon papers. <laughs> For some reason, I heard recently that Tom Hanks apparently loves to write on typewriters. Like, apparently he wrote a book a few years ago that uh, he wrote all on typewriter and then made a big deal about that. Oh, my God. Wait, so he that's funny that he's in this movie. Uh, I did really like the scene at the end, though, when they actually show the uh, printing thing going on. Like, how they make up all the, like, little uh, printing press pieces and have to put it together to make the front page. Mm -hmm. I thought that was actually really awesome, having never seen any of that before. That's true. It was, I mean, yeah, a lot of the movies nominated this year were like historical pieces that took place in a specific time frame. Like, so this is, yeah, they are like very, getting very specific to 1971. Right. Um, so basically, Meryl Streep is playing Catherine Graham in this movie, who basically inherits a responsibility over the Washington Post after her, both her husband and her father die. Um, and then they're also about to make the Washington Post publicly traded so there's all this like worry that depending on what they do they might like um uh they might like fuck over their stocks basically and there's this whole thing with bradley whitford and the um board of trustees like basically not trusting her because she's a woman right so a lot of good like feminist stuff it's very so th i would s this is very second wave feminism because they have all these like rich white ladies that are getting talked over by the rich white dudes yeah i mean i will say um going into this movie i thought it was going to be a lot bo more boring than it was mm -hmm. like when they actually got into the themes and stuff, I thought it was pretty interesting just because it's all about like whether you should do what will help you as a corporation or whether you should do what is actually right, like exposing all the stuff that will definitely get them in trouble. Well, you know what I thought uh, while watching this is this proves all the conservatives' paranoia about like the evil left media, liberal media attacking the president. <laughs> Right, exactly. No, it's funny how this movie is coming out now. I mean, I'm sure it's not a coincidence that Spielberg wants to say something about the Trump presidency. Yeah, I think that's why it got nominated, because people saw it as being topical. Yeah, and there are some good scenes where they just show Nixon from the back, uh, where they do a good job, make it seem like it's Nixon, and I just thought like you could easily just make that Trump and be the exact same thing. Yeah, that's very true. But you do get the sense that there's all these people with all these conflicting ideologies that are all trying to, like, push their agenda. Like, there's Robert McNamara just trying to be like, I knew Vietnam was fucked, but we just had to do it. Yeah. And then there's the guy whose crisis of conscience basically got him to leak this stuff with a bunch of hippies, like, photocopying all the stuff. Right. Over to the post. And then there's all this interesting stuff about, like, the New York Times actually has the story first, but they get subpoenaed by the government. So it's like yeah. the Post gets this little window of opportunity. It was a Supreme Court case. It was like a big deal, I guess. I had to read a lot of history to catch up on what was going on. It, but yeah, so it's kind of like she had, she had to be tough and like fight against. They were battling the New York Times. Uh, even the government didn't want them to publish stuff, as well as her own like board of trustees. Um, it was like yeah. her and. Her and the Ben ba Bradley guy, played by Tom Hanks, make, like, an alliance, ultimately, I guess. Oh, yeah, this is all before our times. Exactly. 
Oh, I did like, it's also a lot of early on, just this whole thing about like shadowy rooms full of men, like making these stupid decisions. And you can see Meryl Streep being like, oh my God, these stupid men. Yeah. And it, yeah, they just had these like rich people parties and you just have your like political friends come over and like this influences people. I don't know. It's just really fucked up actually to see all these rich people dealings. Yeah, it's kind of like boys with toys. And then if you look at the whole overview, like there's like playing with people's lives and being kind of fucked up. Mm-hmm. I will say, it was undeniably exciting to see a movie with uh, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks working together. Like, there's a scene where he comes to meet her for lunch, or she comes to meet him, and just, like, you can feel all this palpable energy of, like, oh my god, these two, like, amazing actors interacting. Yeah, it was very... Uh, yeah, it was very character acty. <laughs> They're, like, put, putting themselves into these people. Yeah, and you know, obviously, like, all the production is amazing, uh, the scores by John Williams and all the stuff you usually expect. Um, I also kind of got reminded a little bit of, like, Robert Zemeckis films. Like, Robert Zemeckis also works with Tom Hanks a bunch. They did, um, Forrest Gump together and Castaway. Oh, God. (laughs) So Robert Zemeckis obviously likes to do all this stuff about, like, integrating, uh, historical stuff. Oh, yeah. Kind of took a few cues from him. Oh my gosh. Yeah, did Forrest Gump win a bunch of Oscars? Yeah, I did. <laughs> oh my god. Such Oscar bait. That's the thing about the posters. Yeah, you can just tell it's like yeah. Oscar bait. <laughs> so I did Benjamin Button. Um But this is also kind of interesting because the book it was written based on wasn't even that old. Um so I think basically this uh I think Spielberg got onto this and just decided to, you know, Right, like push this into production right away. You know what I read and thought was weird was remember how in the movie they were um, like, oh, the Washington Post is a family legacy of this rich family, and they want to keep it in the family. Apparently, after Catherine, I think I read after Catherine Graham died, the heirs sold it to Jeff Bezos for Amazon. (laughs) I mean, I think they might still be like employed by it, but I don't think they own it anymore. Oh, you mean? You're talking about how Amazon bought the Washington Post? Yeah, that was like a few years ago. Okay, yeah, so it was after she died, but she was all fighting for it to like stay in the family in this movie, and I was just like, thought that was ironic Oops. or something. <laughs> but then, like, as as we all know, uh, under the Trump era, they changed their uh, little tagline to Truth Dies in Darkness. Wow. So, like, they're purposely trying to still fight the establishment. I see. Even though now they are the establishment. Yeah. And also, I... Th- like you get the sense of excitement from from Spielberg making this movie that he really did want to be like, like make a movie that honored the legacy of all the presidents men, since hmm. that's like a movie that's really influential and probably like led a bunch of people to get into journalism and stuff. Mm. Let's see. Oh, I thought one thing was funny is that like in a bunch of the scenes with Tom Hanks, he always like is putting his leg up. Like they always shoot the scenes <laughs> so that his like leg is like most of the frame. Oh my gosh. And it was really interesting, like, seeing the inner workings of the actual office. Like, they have a bunch of, uh, like, African-American people working there, like, women and stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see that. I mean... They're almost like the hippies, like, uh, rebels or whatever, if this was a Star Wars film. This is the Rogue One to uh, all the presidents, man. Yeah, they're the... Yeah, and the New York Times is more, like, polished and fancy or whatever. Yeah. Let's see. And then Meryl Streep is obviously really good. Like, she gives an awesome lived-in performance, you know, like usual. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Her accent's ridiculous. Whatever, Meryl Streep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so over it, Meryl. <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah. Oh, uh, there's this whole fucking gag with Lemonade, because they keep, like, oh my meeting God. at this guy's house. 
Yeah, it's this like a long running gag where he's like that's stuff money. like that. That's ridiculous. Yeah, and yeah. So Ben Bradley's some rich bitch too. Uh, he's like super from a super fancy family. Uh, so that's I guess he's just like very good at. Um, I guess yeah, he's just in for making his daughter be more aggressive. Right. Yeah, it's kind of funny, but also kind of another one that's like a cheesy. Yeah, cheesy gags. Uh, the style of this movie kind of reminded me of like Munich or Saving Private Ryan or something. Like the tone of it was sort of muted, the colors and stuff. Hmm. And it almost looked like they probably filmed it on like actual film instead of uh, HD stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, it was definitely, they got the 70s, co- early 70s colors, right? They even had like an anti-war protest where they're going through the crowd and showing all the hippies. Right, yeah, that was a fun scene. <laughs> uh, but also, whenever I see one of these period movies from the 60s or 70s, I'm, I'm just like, has literally nothing changed in the last 50 years? Like, I always feel like, sure, we added computers and the internet, but aside from that, like, nothing has changed. We dress the same, we pretty much act the exact same way. It's strange. I mean, we're in the mass-produced clothing era, so yeah, we dress, probably have similar fabrics and stuff, I don't know. So yeah, then the movie ends with um, a guard seeing somebody breaking into the Watergate, and you know <laughs> what's going to happen next. Yeah, Frank Wills. Frank Wills, this actual famous security guard. <laughs> Alright, um, I think that pretty much does it for me for this movie, I don't... Yeah, the movie where pretty much everyone, every character, even if they only have like one or two lines, has their own Wikipedia page. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, and there's that uh, that little creepy kid from Breaking Bad and Friday Night Lights. He is the lawyer or whatever who's like advising them, don't do this shit because you'll definitely get sued. Mm. Oh, 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 one other thing I want to mention was I thought Tom Hanks' wife's character was really cool. Uh, she's played by Sarah Paulson, and she's just like this artist lady, and she's just like being quietly like awesome in the background. Yeah, she's kind of a housewife. Being like, all right, honey, you're doing amazing work. Yeah, well, she has to explain second wave feminism to Tom Hanks. That was her main point. Was to <laughs> she kind of explains Meryl Streep's position as a woman to him right exactly so yeah um i say overall this film is probably a little bit overrated but it's still pretty good um i don't think it'll probably win best picture but yeah it's not bad it's just boring and i wouldn't watch it on my own of my own volition (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i kind of liked all the presents man i like what it's going for i just don't know that it's like the most amazing movie ever Mm -hmm. oh the kid i was talking about his name is jesse plemons by the way the breaking bad lawyer guy okay Next, we're going to talk about the uh, darkest hour. As opposed to the lightest hour. Yeah. uh, So this takes place in 1940 and stars Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill. And I guess I didn't realize Winston Churchill was basically the penguin. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so this takes place over just a couple of months, I think, in 1940. Right. It's all about the transition from uh, Neville Chamberlain to Winston Churchill and how that was all going on when the Dunkirk stuff was going on and Britain was getting into World War II. Yes. So, oh, yeah. So they, uh, so Germany has like basically been taking, systematically taking over Europe and Britain's feeling exactly. the threat now. Both this and Dunkirk begin with just about like pretty much the same exact stuff. Uh, begin with a title crawl. This one I wrote down: Hitler invaded Czech, Slovakia, Poland, and Denmark. And then it said three million German troops are poised on Belgium's border. 
And then they're talking about how British Parliament has losing faith in Winston, in, uh, sorry, in Chamberlain. Yes, because they've been losing or whatever, not doing well in the fight. And there's all this stuff in the beginning that I never really understand about, like, British politics. Uh, apparently, Chamberlain is from the opposition party, or sorry, the Labour Party. And then uh, Winston Churchill is coming in from the Conservative Party. Yes, yeah, so that's why I was just like, fuck all these Conservative Party people. I don't care about them like I support i would support the labor party <laughs> right yeah so i never really understand any of that stuff i'm just like okay whatever it's important it's I british guess. politics from 1940 um oh actually this is this pairs really well with the post because it's so much about winston churchill's speeches and he has a type yeah. he has a typist person who does all his uh typing up on typewriters so even though they're like 30 years apart and in different countries there's a lot of like word theme overlap with those two movies. It's true. It is It is all about language and how important it is. Oh, and you had mentioned this. I thought it was interesting. Apparently, this also features King George the Sixth, who's played by Ben Mendelsohn in this one, mm-hmm. but he was the guy from the King's Speech. Yep. Uh, so another speech movie. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how these movies always get nominated for this kind of stuff. So the secretary lady is played by Lily James, who was just in Baby Driver as the love interest in that. Oh. I thought she was really good in this movie, but I also thought that they didn't go far enough. She felt like a running gag or something. Yeah, it's, I almost felt like they set it up so it'd be more from her point of view or more about her, her contribution, or how she was, like, fundamental for him, like, writing his speeches and shit. But they basically but she just, was like, a tabula rasa. Yeah, they basically just set her up and then it becomes, like, all about Gary Oldman and Winston Churchill. Becomes his whole movie. Gary Oldman doing a bit. Yeah, I mean, I will say that I did think that his acting in this movie was really good. Like, I was sort of paying close attention to it, and he does a lot of, like, really subtle, nuanced stuff with his face and his voice. Um, And he actually projects, like, this leading man aura, which I think in a lot of his movies he kind of struggles with that. Like, he's usually a side character, like a bad guy or some other helper guy. But that's when he, like, sort of commanded the whole movie. Like, it rests on his shoulder, pretty much. Yes, it does. It introduces him in a kind of interesting way. Uh, so it's Lily James as the secretary, um, who's called Elizabeth Layton. She just got hired, so she, like, goes up to meet with him, and he's just, like, in the dark. And he, like, lights up his cigar and then kind of, like, flares up on his face. So it's, like, this red <laughs> image in the dark. And then he gets, like, really mad at her because she, like, mishears him. So he's like, I don't want this secretary. Give me someone else. So it just, like, introduces right away that there's this guy who's working really hard, but he's very, like, temperamental, and people don't really like him that much. But then, of course, there's all this, like, stories that we know about of him being at, like, dinner parties and saying hilarious things. Yes. So it's kind of hard to square those two things together, but interesting. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. I There's all this stuff about how um, they don't trust him at first because apparently he messed up a Gallipoli campaign. Oh yeah, Gallipoli. They don't think they can really trust him as a yeah as a leader. Um, but yeah, it's like something some drama where this guy Lord Halifax declines being the prime minister, so the Conservative Party can only pick the only person that the coalition of all parties would support other than Lord Halifax is Winston Churchill, I guess. Right. He's kind of foisted into the role. And one of the characters even says something like the only person who Winston Churchill's in for is Winston Churchill. So they think he's just going to like do stuff for himself, but he actually does 
become instrumental. Well, yeah, I was confu- kind of confused by the conflicted character. I guess it's just because people are gossiping about him, but they say people, it's like we're we're supposed to know him as being a good orator, right? Like a rousing speech right. person. But all these people keep saying how he's a bad orator because you can't understand what he's saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's too clever. <laughs> no, he's just got like a weird thick accent or something. Mm. I think is what it was. Yeah. They didn't like the tone yeah. of his voice, I guess. I thought it was an in- really interesting voice that he was doing throughout the movie. Yeah, no. I you definitely probably want subtitles for this one though. But it's also funny that um they cast Gary Oldman in the first place cuz of course he doesn't look anything like Winston Churchill. <laughs> yeah, it's just like why um was he always quoting Shakespeare? He did sometimes. Okay. Yeah. Because I was like, I'm missing all these references. If he just starts like saying stuff, saying quotes. Yeah, this was definitely a movie where captions did help or would have helped. <laughs> yes. Oh, I joked uh, that this was almost like a Star Wars prequel at the beginning because it's just all this like really boring scenes of like politicky shit going on. I did also notice that the way this movie is filmed, it like works really well in black and white. Like I tested this by turning on the saturation all the way down, and it looked like. Like, it meant to be shot in black and white. Like, they're going for that old historical film mm. feel. They did this really annoying thing with, like, the um, dates, though. Like, they kept showing, like, the days changing, and it would be, like, this giant font taking up the whole screen. <laughs> yeah. I think it was the exact same font they used for Justice League, too, weirdly enough. So it's, like, big, loud intertitles. Yeah, it was. It was, like, 9th of May. I do also think with Winston Churchill, they were like almost trying to make him into like a Charles Foster Kane type character, like Citizen Kane, which is like this big, larger than life guy who's like just trying to do the right thing. Yeah, um, but he's also like lying to the public because he he's inspirational in like at least one of his speeches at the expense of being truthful. Right. Yeah. So you can see a lot of um, uh, reverberance between him and like other politicians who do the exact same thing, even. Um, Tony Blair or something like that. Or the Pentagon Papers, they were lying to the public. Right, I mean, yeah, obviously the government's constantly lying to everyone. (laughs) But apparently that wasn't, like, a big thing, like, that Americans thought until the Vietnam War, until, like, the 70s and stuff. People used to be a lot more trusting and trustworthy of that. Right. Um, Until it became, like, really obvious and, like, unavoidable, which is kind of, like, what's happening again right now. Yeah, there's kind of this sense of British nationalism, strong British nationalism, because he goes out to the people to survey them. But I was like, that scene was so weird. He just goes on the subway and talks to a subway car full of people. And I was like, is this statistically significant? Did you, like, sample enough people? Like... I don't <laughs> right, we should talk about how that's kind of like the big ending sequence. It's like he decides instead of going in his car, he just like ducks away and runs into the underground. It's almost like a dream sequence because that's what it feels like. It was weird, you know, yeah. Just, yeah, all these people recognize him and he's just like, uh, yeah, like you're saying, um, informally pulling them. Like, are we doing the right thing? Should we take on Hitler? What do you guys think about this? Yeah, would you fight even if we, it seems like we're losing? They're like, yeah! And there he's like, would you ever make a deal with Hitler? They're like, never! And, it's, and I, they're like, never! <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's pretty good. And then he starts quoting something. Is he quoting Shakespeare there? <laughs> yeah, that's when he quotes Shakespeare, right? Okay. Oh, and what did you think of the race um, handling? Because there's um, one black actor, I think, in this movie, and it, he was on the subway car. Um, I mean, that was probably pretty realistic, honestly. Do you think he would have touched him? Do you think he wouldn't have been racist towards him? 
No, I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Oh, okay. I just kind of assumed Winston Churchill would have been racist, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure everyone was racist. Yes. Forever. All the <laughs> forever, time. all the time. Oh, yeah. He talks about the brute heart of Hitler. Um, there's some cool shots, like some cool stylish shots of him, like going down an elevator, for example, and they show, like, just the elevator going down. But yeah, so basically he gets amped up and then he goes back to Parliament. And that's when they show him deliver this, like, big famous speech about how we're going to fight in the beaches, we're going to fight in the hills, and we'll never give up. And uh, he asks this really important question, which is just, where shall we be at the end of all this? And then one of the guys watching is just like, what did, what just happened? And he's like, he mobilized the English language. <laughs> Again, it's about the power of speech. Yes, I think there's even a line that's like, words, 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 or something. Uh- <laughs> Oh, I thought it was kind of funny, though. That he also kind of sounded like Droopy the dog at some points. Like, if you just close <laughs> your eyes and imagine that character. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they have this whole thing where when he's with the um, other other uh, ministers and stuff, there's this one guy who's really trying to push that they should just, like, surrender with Hitler or, like, make terms now because they think he's going to take over anyway. And then the Churchill thing is just like, don't do that by any circumstances. Like, we're never going to talk peace right yeah yeah so it's supposed to be i don't know for some reason people still thought you could negotiate with hitler that he would like listen to that but obviously he kept violating treaties and stuff so winston churchill's just like why would we deal with this guy yeah he was like the smartest guy in the room at the time um but also this was again before all the holocaust stuff was coming out like that wasn't widely known Mm. so nobody really knew how horrible it all was it is a well-directed film like it's very fast-paced and they do some cool shots with like uh they have a plane montage i remember where they're showing like him walking around the planes mm-hmm. they do some cool like overhead shots that almost look like um the 2d gtas uh they have some like shots of him like driving in a car and just like passing over the people so you get like this texture of like this is the people of england all that crap right it was very like English stylistic or something, or um, it exactly. had a particular style to it. Yeah. He meets with like the French prime minister, and he like can only talk in broken French, so it is funny. And then the French guy think French PM thinks he's delusional. Oh, because he keeps insisting that they're doing fine. Well, so there he was delusional yeah. because they were losing the battle. Right, but in I think France. the implication was you kind of have to be a little delusional to just uh, like hold on to that hope. And someone makes the point that um, Winston Churchill has like 400 ideas a day and five of them will be good. Yeah, that's one of the gossips about him. Oh, and also that he drinks a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they show at the beginning how he has like a brandy in the morning and then like a <laughs> bottle of wine with lunch and then, like just a billion drinks all day. It's just insane. Yeah. I don't know how his liver doesn't just fail. Yeah. Uh, they keep comparing him to Cicero and he spends like half the movie like in his fucking little bathrobe. Yeah, wait, what was the deal with Cicero? Who is Cicero? Cicero is the classic historical figure who can, like, just charm anyone with his words. Oh. So it's kind of a contrast between, like, he, good, like, being a charmer, but also, like, being horrible and off-putting. It's like this weird conflict, conflict between the two. It's like this powerful but very particular figure that if you surround him with the right people, he's going to do amazing things. But then if he's just off to his own whims, he'll just be like a horrible narcissist. Yes. And then it goes into this whole thing where he like is brought into the Dunkirk stuff where they're trying to figure out what they can do with this whole force that's like stuck on the beach. 
and he's the one who they show in the movie comes up with the idea to get the um civilian fleet out there to help them the pleasure both pleasure yachts they keep calling it in both movies oh operation dynamo yeah the civilian yeah. boats yeah <laughs> at one point he calls his mother a whore and his, says his dad was absent yeah there's definitely a father theme and like the fatherland kind of like nationalism theme as well um i thought this was funny uh the guy who like keeps pushing them to just like try to surrender uh he says you need to either make peace talks in 24 hours or i'll resign and i was kind of like if i was churchill i would say that was an option you'll just resign okay do that yeah i had to read about that apparently yeah lord that was lord halifax and then neville chamberlain threatened to resign but then neville chamberlain just stays um he succumbs to the will of the people i guess I mean, it's kind of interesting in a way. It's almost taking 40s history of United Kingdom and turning it almost Shakespearean. Like, it becomes about this big figure, Churchill, and how he was so instrumental in this war. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and how his... But this is... Yeah, so this is more of the word side, and I guess um, you don't actually see much of the battle. Oh, I was going to say that this movie's anti-mumblecore, because we were talking about mumblecore <laughs> with Greta Gerwig, because there's a line yeah. where it's some, they insult him for mumbling or something, and I wrote, like, um, you only do mumblecore if you don't have the right thing to say. <laughs> like, you... Right. <laughs> otherwise, you're clearly saying what you're saying. I mean, I think the interesting thing about this film is... Um, that this was almost one of the first really radio-friendly uh leaders this was like when all that technology is coming oh really big. that's why the speeches mattered and when he does that big speech at the end that's like a speech that was really famous for spurring on a lot of uh this military action for getting the u.s more interested in helping out and just like getting ally support and they also reference this film at the end of dunkirk so we'll talk about that a little later but so clearly it was like important um also i just did want to mention the director joe wright you might know him. Uh, he directed um, Pride and Prejudice, the remake, Atonement, um, The Soloist, Hannah, Anna Karina. So he's known for making these sort of like costume dramas and stuff. Mm. And this probably is really similar to Atonement and Tone, just because that one's also about how like war is horrible. Oh my god, fucking Atonement. I don't know. I kind of like that movie, but I can see why. That one was about World War One because it's like there's all this drama and then James McAvoy gets sent off to <gasps> oh, war. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the end, you find out that they both died, but the story uh, she told made it seem like she lived. Right. They both lived. Spoilers, sorry. 